This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Sunday, August 27th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. Congress is facing a pressing government spending deadline with the right and left flanks drawing lines in the sand. Uh, we almost, you know, tipped the scales with the debt ceiling earlier this summer. Um, you know, I was, you know, thought that that was about 50-50. There are actual members, Republican members of the House, who think it would be a good idea to shut down the government. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. There was a big congressional effort to get semiconductor chips made in America, but what about our medicine? Will there be a similar effort to make our drugs here at home? I think what we need to see from, from Congress is putting some of this legislation into action to create a resilient future a lot of people don't even realize that the drugs that are coming into our country um, are coming from facilities that have not been inspected in three years. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. The days are getting shorter. The kids are heading back to school. Summer is slowly making that transition to fall. It can only mean one thing, appropriation season in D.C. I know the mere mention of it can cause eyes to glaze over, but the spending fights we expect in Congress early next month could have big implications for how candidates and the parties at large position themselves during the 2024 campaign. It could also have global consequences as support appears to be eroding on the however long it takes approach to Ukraine military aid. Any spending plan, long term or short, will need bipartisan buy in with support from not just rank and file Republicans and Democrats, but top leaders like Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Already, House conservatives and the Freedom Caucus are outlining clear conditions for their support, including substantial border and immigration legislation, spending caps below agreed to totals and no blank check for Ukraine. That will counter Democrats' demands that a budget agreement negotiated by McCarthy and President Biden is not undone. So I asked Fox News senior congressional correspondent Chad Pergram, on a scale of one to five, how likely is a government shutdown at the end of September? His answer, 5.1. So seriously, because, uh, you know, we're dealing in a, in a time of crisis and management of crises in government. Uh, we almost, you know, tipped the scales with the debt ceiling earlier this summer. Um, you know, I was, you know, thought that that was about 50-50. There are actual members, Republican members of the House, who think it would be a good idea to shut down the government. And right. this is where, you know, they just don't have a lot of track. Uh, the Senate is out to the 5th of September. Uh, the House comes back on the 12th. And Kevin McCarthy has, has all this pressure from conservatives to do the appropriations bills individually but also do them at these lower spending levels below what they agreed to in the debt ceiling package back in the spring with President Biden. And at some point, you know, he could he could pass an interim spending bill uh, and the Senate, Democrats and Republicans would go for this, that we keep the government open on an interim basis, you know, for a month or maybe to Christmas time, which is usually what they do. And you and I always talk about 
<laughs> what, what did we talk about, Jared? Beware the Ides of August and Christmas. So, okay. That's right. So, so that this is tracking appropriately this year. Um, <laughs> but, but he would have to do that with a combination of Democrats and Republicans. And these conservatives know that that's probably how he has to do it eventually. But they want a good fight. And they believe that it uh, helps them back in their districts fighting with, uh, you know, President Biden and the Democrats and also maybe shutting down the government. That looks good for them because, you know, they're opposed to government. They believe that the government has been weaponized. And so, hey, you know, th th that's why I put it at five point one. You know, it's not even, you know, 50 percent. I'd put it a little bit higher. I mean, so I mean, the, the, here's the thing is if, um, you know, we hear McCarthy say a lot and he has kind of chided the media a little bit, right? That you guys always say that we're not going to get this done. And then, you know, the day two story is, you know, they're not any closer. And the day three story is how did you ha make it happen, right? Is right. that what this is lining up to be? I mean, McCarthy has a couple of options here, right? He can demand these spending cuts, demand regular order, and sort of be okay with a short-term or medium-term or whatever long it is shutdown, which, to your point, some of his members don't feel is that big a threat. Or he can show, hey, we're, we're in a position to govern. We're going to get a good deal here by working with Democrats sort of in the way that they reached this bipartisan uh, debt limit deal. Is that something he can do again? I mean, can he can he repeat that for a second time? You know, he keeps walking this tightrope. And, you know, we see this all the time in politics. We would see Nancy Pelosi do it. We saw Harry Reid do it. Mitch McConnell do it. I mean, it happens a lot. Um, so are the chances there? Yeah, possibly. But there's also a really good chance that they could shut down the government. And the reason is because it's about the math. Uh, the math is that the math exists that he has a combination, as I said, of Democrats and Republicans who could keep the government open. But at some point, he has to put a bill on the floor, inevitably, if it's going to get through the Senate, frankly, and get signed by the president, that probably has more support with Democrats than it does Republicans, unless there is some devilish bargain that is made with Hakeem Jeffries that the left hates it and the far right hates it. And there's this big fat middle. Now, that's what happened with the debt ceiling. But again, it is when you look at that vote matrix, there were more there were more you know, Democrats in the House who supported that. And that could be problematic. And this is where Chip Roy, the Republican from Texas, by the way, used to be, you know, a top aide to Ted Cruz, the Republican mm -hmm. senator from Texas, who kind of engineered the, the fight over the government shutdown, uh, you know, about a decade ago over Obamacare. Yeah. During, uh, yeah. and, and Superstorm Sandy funding, a lot of things were wrapped up into that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and so, you know, he said that that bill, when it comes back from the Senate, needs to look a lot more like the House bill. Now, there are a couple of different fronts here. You have a coalition of Republicans who want to you know, cut funding for the DOJ or defund the DOJ or defund Jack Smith, the special counsel. Uh, Chip Roy has talked a lot about maybe an effort to deal with the border, uh, mm -hmm. to, you know, you know, change the funding there in some way, you know, whether or not that that would be enough. I mean, he's given them at least an escape hatch, Chip Roy has, which maybe he, he might be willing to take it on the chin some other ways. I don't I don't know for sure. Nobody knows right now because there's no pen to paper yet. This was supposed to be easier, though. The, the debt deal that they agreed to set the spending caps. Why is uh, or, I mean, I know that you and I have talked about those aren't set in stone and they're certainly not law. Uh, are, I mean, are, are those not the numbers that, that we're working with anymore? Uh, not really in the House. 
uh, you know, mm -hmm. all of the bills that they tried to write in committee were written to a lower level. And this is where you have, you know, this is the Goldilocks approach to governing. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. You had this interesting dynamic on the House floor just before the recess in late July, where they were trying to pass this agriculture spending mm -hmm. bill. Now, again, that's one of the easier ones, right? Uh, Usually. It was supposed to be easier, <laughs> yes. And because you had just enough Republicans who were moderates uh, and just enough really conservative ones who said it didn't cut enough, you couldn't get the vote matrix right. And the Democrats were probably not willing to help because they didn't like much of it at all. And so when you're dealing with a narrow majority, that's the difference. Now, Kevin McCarthy so far has demonstrated he's been able to pass some pretty significant bills. Maybe they haven't mm -hmm. gone anywhere with narrow majorities, passing their version of the defense bill, passing a debt ceiling bill back in late April. That really wasn't the debt ceiling package, a, a couple of other things. Mm -hmm. And as I always come back to, to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the former speaker, that you know she would always kind of run this inside straight and get precisely to the member how many votes she needed. So far, Kevin McCarthy has done that a little bit. So maybe he's able to do it again. So maybe he'll be chiding us in the press corps when we say, are you going to get this done? I don't know. He, he, <laughs> he has demonstrated do that. that. He has demonstrated well, that so far, just on the GOP side of the aisle, though. He has, but this is something that's going to have to win bipartisan approval to your earlier point. Right. I have to get to the right. Senate. It's going to need the president's signature. Um, and what's the motivation, if you're Hakeem Jeffries, if you're Chuck Schumer, right, to take less than what you think you, you can get, right? I mean, are you going to agree if you're a Democratic leader to anything that's a dollar less than the agreed upon numbers that they came up with a few months ago? Yeah, I, I mean, that's going to be the challenge, uh, you know, because Hakeem Jeffries, you ask what his motivation is. He has said repeatedly, uh, we agreed to something uh, that was negotiated mm -hmm. by the president of the United States. There were more Democrats on board because if Hakeem Jeffries signs off on this, now his political problems are not nearly as deep as Kevin McCarthy's on his side of the aisle. Uh, you know, so maybe, maybe, maybe this is, maybe Kevin, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe <laughs> what happened is that they, you know, and this is never said, but this is done with winks and nods up here, that it was understood, understood, Jared, that the Democrats would provide a few more votes on the debt ceiling and the Republicans would provide a few more votes on the government, you know, funding side later mm -hmm. in the year. And again, those things are never said. But I can see a universe where that could happen. Absolutely. Uh, because I mean, you Democrats and I you, you and I talk about this sort of break in case of uh, break glass in case of emergency votes. Right. The, these are the votes yes. you're talking about. Like if we need you, we're going to need you. And those members kind of are the last to vote. Yeah, I always remember. And this was on. Um, you know, one of the big bills back with, uh, uh, you know, debt ceiling, government shutdown and everything. And I remember you would see these members kind of hang out in the middle of the aisle. One was Tom <laughs> Latham, who's a former congressman from mm -hmm. Iowa, who was very close to John Boehner. But there was a bill that he just absolutely could not vote for. And, you know, he was going to help his friend, John Boehner. I mean, he, he, Tom Latham and John Boehner were probably as close as anybody in the, in the House when they served together here. And, and, I, uh, and this is where I always talk about Yogi Berra. You can see a lot by watching. And I was watching the floor, Jared, and there was Latham and a couple of Tim Scott, who was then in the House, now the Republican senator from South Carolina running for, he was one of those. And, and Latham, ultimately, they did not need his vote. And he bolted from the building, and it was right before a recess. And 
I don't think he was seen until he got to, you know, Mason City, frankly. I mean, you, I, mean I mean, there was nothing between here. I mean, you know, seriously. And so those are those – and the whip usually – holds those guys or gals close and then lets them go or says, okay, you got to vote. And as you say, in case of emergency, break glass. Let me finish with this. What should we be expecting to see when Congress comes back? I mean, is this going to be like a an all gas, no break situation with trying to resolve this? Or is there going to be a lot of sort of slow days behind the scenes negotiations, seeing if they can well, come up with an omnibus or something to, to move the process along? The news oxygen might be consumed by what Republicans are trying to do with investigations with President Mm. Biden and Hunter Biden and the bank records. Uh, There's going to be a lot of calls. And Kevin McCarthy might be forced to take a vote or two regarding creating an an impeachment inquiry. That's a formal vote. You don't actually impeach the president at that point, but Mm. you formalize the inquiry. This is something that Pelosi did back in 2019, also in the fall around this time. And you could see... Uh, the pressure being applied to Kevin McCarthy. I mean, I mean, you know, there's been a couple of members uh, on our air the past week saying, you know, we have the information. We're going to push for this when they come back. And so that will consume a lot of the, the attention. And Democrats will say, oh, look, you're not interested in finding the government. You want to impeach the president. You know, so that's that will be the rhetoric you will hear in about uh, three or four weeks. And then I guess I, I said I only had one more, but I'll, I'll finish because you brought up a good point. Is well, the that's the point able one, to, five point one. Yeah. Right? So this is well, I was going to say, one. so, <laughs> yeah, I always uh, reserve the right to extend and revise my remarks. Um, yes. If, uh, is that a pressure point, though, that, that McCarthy as the speaker can apply? Like if he needs some votes to get a spending bill, to get a CR, to get something across the finish line, kind of dangled at that impeachment inquiry? Or do members who are supportive of the impeachment kind of view that as a totally different standalone thing, separate and apart from any spending fight? I I think Republicans view that as a standalone. They they see the issue separately. But in the macro sense, they put all these things together and say, oh, you know, if if there's a lot of Republicans, and I mean a lot of Republicans grumbling that they're not doing impeachment, then they even they might take that out on Kevin McCarthy. And this is where you know, this sort of Damocles has hung over him since, you know, January uh, about, uh, you know, vacating the chair, calling a speaker's vote mm-hmm. in the middle of the Congress. I mean, that would be wild. You know, we can't fund the government. They're trying to impeach the president and somebody moves to vacate the chair in September. I mean, <laughs> beware of the Ides of September. <laughs> well, it's going to be um, it's going to be a lot to cover when, when Congress gets back. Let's get a little bit of rest between now and then. Chad, I appreciate the time as always. Likewise. Thank you. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
There have been drug shortages in this country, from antibiotics to cancer drugs, and issues with the supply chain during the pandemic impacted medicines as well. One of the reasons we're experiencing this is because medicine, like so many other things, is not made here at home, but overseas. This was Republican Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers at an Energy and Commerce Subcommittee hearing back in May. She said the FDA still can't provide precise details on where much of our medicine, including active pharmaceutical ingredients, or APIs, are made. FDA last testified that around 80% of API facilities and 60% of finished dosage facilities are overseas, including India and adversarial countries like China. The National Institutes of Health said between 2013 and 2019, nearly all active pharmaceutical ingredients were made abroad, 26% in India, 18% in China. The chairman of the Oversight and Investigations Subcommittee, Congressman Morgan Griffith, noted most drugs are generics and profit from making those is low. Over the past 10 years, the United States has seen dozens of generic drug manufacturing facilities close. And this shortage problem isn't limited to just closings. The typical generic drug has just two manufacturing facilities. We currently do not fully utilize the factories that we have. Earlier this summer, the FDA approved the temporary importation of some unapproved cancer drugs from China due to a shortage here. Florida Democratic Congresswoman Kathy Castor said, No patient should have to hear the words, we do not have medicine to treat you. Some in Congress are working on legislation to have more medicine made in America. A bipartisan group in the House and Senate have formed the Domestic Pharmaceutical Manufacturing Caucus. And Florida Republican Congressman Bill Posey is working on getting funding to make more of the blood thinner heparin here in America. Especially important after the Pentagon said they are now testing pharmaceutical drugs they give troops and veterans. After it was discovered, some of the shortages had been due to manufacturer quality problems. Flow is a leading developer and manufacturer of critical essential medicines uh, for the resiliency of our supply chain in America. Dr. Eric Edwards is the CEO and founder of Flow, a public benefit pharmaceutical company involved in the domestic production of active pharmaceutical ingredients. Right. You used the keywords um, that even members of Congress have been discussing, um, APIs and starting materials, which definitely caught my eye. So tell us, and you might not be able to answer every question in full because you're not like a, a computer pulling up FDA material, but what sort of drugs that we rely on um, maybe heavily aren't, are not made here and where are they made? Yeah, you would be surprised at the amount of medications from our supply chain that are not made in the United States of America and the different classes that they represent. So we're talking about uh, medicines, and in this case, we're talking about generic medicines, so non-innovator, off-patent drugs, where, uh, as you and your listeners might know, over 90% of prescriptions that are written are written for generic medicines, right? So this the vast majority of medicines mm. that Americans consume on a daily basis fall within this generic space. And the medicines that are primarily not made in the United States include classes such as most antibiotics, medicines for pain management and sedation, critical medicines that are used in the uh, ICU to control blood pressure, medicines that are on our ambulance that we rely upon on a daily basis when someone calls 911 uh, and other critical care drugs. These are the drugs that are uh, not only in shortage, but we have a significant issue with our supply chain being predominantly overseas. And there's this this talk of like, oh, China is dominating this market, but that I'm having trouble finding out if that's true, right? Because there's there's this difference between there. You've got the 
active pharmaceutical ingredient, but then you have key starting materials that go to make the active pharmaceutical ingredients. And so it's sort of this mishkebabble all over the world that includes India and parts of Southeast Asia, where some of these key starting materials then go to China and then become our ingredients, right? So where, what countries are we most concerned about that are making our drugs? Yeah, there are a lot of confusing uh, facts and data out there as it relates to our supply chain. And, and, and part of the confusion is because there isn't a lot of transparency uh, re- mm. relating to our supply chain. What we do know though, uh, from the data that's available from the FDA and others, is that close to half of all generic active ingredients are made in India and China. So there are a lot of finished products. And what I mean by finished drug products, right? Those are the capsules, the tablets, the vials, the syringes, that these active ingredients, the active ingredients actually give that mechanism of action for the drug. Mm-hmm. Those active ingredients go into a finished product. And finished products, there's a lot of manufacturing in Europe and the United States and friendly nations. Uh, but close to half of the ingredients for these generic medicines are made in India and, and China. And additionally, many of these key starting materials that you mentioned, or what's called intermediates as well, that those key starting materials go into that feed active ingredients come primarily from China. And we mm-hmm. do know that. And we're talking, um, you mentioned antibiotics and blood pressure medication, but we're, I was reading cancer drugs. I mean, some really uh, significant drugs that, that, if you if you missed a dose, if you if you weren't taking it, like if suddenly there was a reason for there to, like you said, the supply chain issues. That there's a pandemic, there's a war, something happens, and you don't get that medicine. I mean, we're talking about some some significant drugs that that people might be relying on. Are we talking about chemo? Like what kind of cancer drugs? D- drugs that impact every aspect of our daily lives, including cancer drugs, uh, are, are most of those active ingredients are made outside the United States. Uh, it has been a market where our industrial base has been lost uh, over decades. So this isn't mm. this didn't happen uh, overnight. This happened over 30 to 40 years, uh, where uh, unfortunately, as as you might be aware, there, there's been kind of a race to the bottom on pricing. And we pushed and offshored many of these critical ingredients uh, because of lower offshore operating costs and labor rates, um, dependency on these raw materials and offshore sources. And, and then the other thing is uh, many foreign governments subsidized and had investments uh, heavily into their own industrial base and manufacturing um, providing subsidies, really shoring up uh, to allow them to play greater leadership roles. And that has certainly been the case with active ingredients. So the categories so wait, that you so mentioned- we treated, So we treated medicine like shoes and computers. We just offshored it. Like we, we, didn't, we didn't make a distinction like, oh, this is more important, so we should keep it here. That's exactly right. Yes, medicines were just looked almost as if it was a commodity and not an industrial base that's a matter of national public health security. It's the same lesson that we've learned from these other key industrial bases uh, over time uh, and from the pandemic, such as the semiconductor industry, right? Mm -hmm. So I I think what what everyone's doing is taking a step back and saying, okay, well, we understand that, first of all, we believe in a global market. We believe that there needs to be trade relations and we need to have imports and exports of of goods and services uh, in order to sustain healthy living and, and live as Americans. But there are some critical industrial bases and some key areas where we need to have resiliency here at home as a matter of national public health security. And to your point, in case of that next natural disaster, future public health emergency or pandemic, 
some trade relationship um, that gets into some conflict or even, uh, God forbid, uh, a war. Uh, and so when, you, when you're dealing with the potential for those disputes and you're trying to figure out how can we make sure that we're going to have resiliency uh, here at home, the only way for us to look at that is to say, what should be made in America again? Yeah. Well, pharma, as you know, is one of the biggest donors to members of Congress, right? So if members of Congress, and there are some who are, who are trying to craft legislation that um, would would have more drugs made in America, is it, are you hopeful that, that members of Congress will get it right and that we will have antibiotics and cancer drugs like sort of immediately being made here? If, if at the same time they're talking about China going to war against Taiwan and, you know, everything could get disrupted. I mean, what, what, do you do you trust lawmakers to get on this and do this? So if you think back to your original question on kind of what drugs are impacted here, so everything from additives to pain medicines to anesthetics to antibiotics to cancer drugs, um, you know, to anticonvulsants, antihistamines, um, ICU drugs, all of these wow. drugs, they impact the health of everyday Americans, right? Including, we have to remember that members of Congress, and they have families too. They're humans too. They use our healthcare system. So this is not um, a question of whether an individual is going to be experience a potential shortage or a challenge as it relates to not having one of these drugs. It is a true bipartisan issue. And so I am hopeful and I am reassured seeing that in this instance, Congress and our leaders are trying to work the issue together. Uh, I do believe that uh, the administration needs to support the work of its congressional leaders and start enacting policy that addresses multiple reports that have already been published in the last three years since the pandemic that clearly identify the problems and also offer real solutions. So I am encouraged by what I see, but you know, uh, creating a report and having rhetoric and talking about the urgency and the importance of this is one thing. Yeah. actually putting in and enacting action and legislation that makes a change is another. Uh, so we well, still what, have a long ways to go. So, Dr. Finally, what what's the holdup? Right. Like I, I just referenced that pharma, big pharma is one of the, the biggest donors to, to members of Congress. I don't know if that's if that is the holdup. Um, but this seems like most Americans have some medication that they're on or using, especially if they're over a certain age. Um, members of Congress are certainly over that certain age. Why isn't this more of like a, a pressing, urgent matter? I mean, as somebody who needs medication, I don't want to have to worry that I can't get it. So I think there's two reasons why this is not a pressing or urgent matter as much as you and I and others think it should be, right? So number one is we're dealing with a lot of complex issues all at the same time in our country, right? We're dealing with geopolitical challenges, macroeconomic challenges. Um, they recognized a critical industrial base with the semiconductor industry, and they took action with the CHIPS legislation. Right. Uh, but now we're dealing with a war in Ukraine, and we're going into an election year. And so from my perspective, it's not a question of whether or not a lot of Congress, uh, congressional members see this as an urgent issue. It's just the fact that there are a lot of competing priorities, and we have to break through the noise. Another thing that I'll mention is, 
you know, when we talk about pharma and pharma lobbying, a lot of those efforts are towards things that impact innovator or high price specialty drugs. This is not that. We're talking about drugs that a lot of people have given up yeah, on. Yeah, that's these, what these, I mean. These are, these are basic medicines, right, that you need. And I call them essential medicines. And how I define that are these are the critical medicines necessary to sustain the life, the lives of Americans. Um, and, you know, I think what we need to see from, from Congress is putting some of this legislation into action to create a resilient future. A lot of people don't even realize that the drugs that are coming into our country um, are coming from facilities that have not been inspected in three years. In wow. fact, um, out of 2,800 foreign manufacturing facilities, uh, the FDA has only inspected about 6% of them in the last three years and 3% of them Indian manufacturers. So we don't even know the quality of the drugs that are coming in for our drug supply chain. And that's why this is such a critical issue. We just need to raise awareness of these issues. And, and you're doing that today through this conversation. Dr. Eric Edwards, founder and CEO of Flow. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. This week, we'll keep an eye on court hearings related to former President Trump's co-defendants in Georgia. His former chief of staff is asking for his case to be moved to federal court. And this Friday, student loan interest resumes. Payments are expected to begin in October. Thanks for listening. I'm Jessica Rosenthal, and this is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.